and welcome to Jorgensen Soundbox, a sandbox of sounds. The best conversations involve both learning and laughing, um, and that's exactly what I'm going to try to bring you here. The topics I'm currently exploring are Web3, so decentralized finance, NFTs, and the metaverse, putting money to work, angel investing, permanent equity, real estate, and some stocks, and the art of leverage. Um, increasing your outcomes and learning to, to do the work that gets more work done. And overall, I'm just going to be having fun with smart friends and sharing everything I can with you. This conversation today uh, really explores leverage and putting money to work because today I'm giving you a sample of the course, Building a Mountain of Leverage. Uh, it was just opened up to people on my mailing list last week. So this is the perfect time to show you some of what's inside there. The course is, is all about leverage as a force multiplier, how to get more impact from your effort, your skill, and your judgment. In the community, we are people who all are learning to use tools, product, people, and capital to accomplish 10x, 100x, or a million x, in some cases, what other people can. Um, so in this conversation today, you're about to hear the biggest three points of leverage in Andrew Wilkinson's career. Uh, how he manages CEOs and his one simple rule for hiring, among other things. And interviews like this with Andrew are uh, how we bring experts into the course to share their experiences with, with members. And Andrew wanted to be sure everyone could get access to this interview, and I'm excited to share it with all of you today. If you like this conversation, you can learn more about the course and community uh, and read more at ejorgensen.com leverage. A little more background on Andrew. Um, it's kind of a crazy story. He, he founded a blog in his teens, uh, dropped out of college, I think in his first year, uh, built up a digital agency called MetaLab that you may be familiar with, and then founded multiple other companies um, successfully and is now in the business of acquiring profitable companies at his company, Tiny. Uh, they own companies now like Dribble and Girl Boss and Meteor. And actually, since we recorded uh, this interview, they bought a majority share of Aeropress, the coffee maker for any of the coffee nerds out there. And Tiny is now over a billion dollars in enterprise value. Um, and Andrew has a, a, an amazing story kind of tracing just being a teenager who really loved messing around on computers to now building a billion dollar company um, through his obsession with, with Buffett and making good investments and working with profitable companies. There's a lot to learn from Andrew. Um, I hope you enjoy our conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. Thanks, uh, thanks Andrew, for doing this. Happy to Good have to you. Uh, thanks for having me, Eric. Happy to have you come in and um, talk to the, the course and the podcast about uh, people leverage. Um, I, I, I don't want to do too much of your story. I want to assume that people kind of already know that and I'll link them to like your podcast with James or with Sean Peary, um, which are like some of the things that I've super appreciated hearing you say before. Um, it covers a lot of your, your basics and background. Um, but before we get into it, um, I have to thank you for starting the company that brought, that brought this Charlie Munger into my life. So awesome. Um, that you have that. I don't assume I have Buffett. There are too. dozens of us. <laughs> I think we've only had dozens of customers, so uh, that's really? awesome. You're in a small, a small but a mighty group. I don't, I don't assume that this is the biggest company in your portfolio, uh, but it, I'm very excited that it exists. Um, my my fiance got me uh, Charlie and Warren for our engagement present uh, nice. because she understands how nerdy I am and has embraced it's that. It's funny. It's one of those things I always wanted. And it was it's a perfect example of starting a business to scratch your own itch and hoping that other people have the same problem. And it's been true. I think we've sold like a hundred thousand dollars worth of those busts. And uh it's been it's been fun. But yes, it's one of our smallest businesses. <laughs> yes, this is this is only for the most dedicated. I mean, this is like exactly a 20 pound bronze thing. Like it's it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, you you better made it through some thick books before you feel like you're gonna get a Charlie and Warren on your, on your shelf. So starting with the leverage stuff, I want to go, I want to kind of start with maybe when you first felt the power of leverage, 
Um, and in one of your other interviews, I have this, this section where you were like running an agency and you started building SaaS tools to help you run the agency. And then instead of like making money on an hourly basis, all of a sudden you're making money, like when you sleep selling tools and that that moment kind of like catalyzed things for you. Does that like stick out in your memory still? Is that like what you think the first feeling was? I think um, I'm kind of like a Gore-Tex. I repel water instead of, except in, it's not water. It's uh, stuff I don't want to do or don't <laughs> understand. And uh, when I won, uh, I think it was my first project uh, when I started MetaLab, um, part of it was a requirement to do some JavaScript. And I didn't know anything about JavaScript, but I told them I could do it. And I very quickly went and found a friend of mine who knew it. And I negotiated an hourly rate with him. And suddenly I was able to sell JavaScript as a service and I started adding it on as, you know, five or $10,000 per project. Um, and, you know, it wasn't pure profit. I had to pay someone, but I effectively didn't really do any of the work. And so that was my first experience of leverage. Um, and then over time, you know, that just kept increasing and increasing um, to the point where I almost fully de- dedicated or um, delegated MetaLab to uh, an executive and stepped away from it completely. And then finally to a CEO. Yeah. So, so let's go through some of that, maybe the meta lab process in a little bit, like step-by-step, step, right? So like you got up to, this is a big agency by the time you hired an executive, right? So what, what were the steps of like, you know, you went from coding directly to hiring people to actually like execute the work, but you were still kind of managing clients. Um, what, what were like maybe the, the levels that you went through? Well, it's, um, it's interesting. I remember I read the, there's a book called the E-Myth, which is about um, kind of the delegation barrier that people Mm -hmm. experience where they're, you know, let's say they're really passionate about baking and they start a bakery. They might find themselves running into the back to bake bread and then running back up to the front to work the till and cleaning at night and really doing everything themselves. And that was where I found myself when I first started running the agency is I was doing almost everything. I was waking up in the morning, um, doing client phone calls and selling in the afternoon. I was doing project management. I'd have a one hour dinner with my uh, girlfriend and then I'd stay up until six in the morning in Photoshop designing stuff. And that is kind of fun Damn. for about six months, but it's pretty brutal after a while. And so um, I read this book, The E-Myth, because I knew I needed to delegate more. And it said that, you know, you at the end of the day, you have to build a process and you have to hire other people to do it. And I remember thinking, well, this is a creative business. We couldn't possibly have a process. You know, we're this unique yeah. snowflake, uh, which was obviously wrong. Um, the first you know, I think the hardest thing for entrepreneurs is to accept that someone else can do the job better than they can, or that maybe someone else won't necessarily do the job better than they can. They might only be 80% of what you could do, but that if you try to do five jobs at once, you're going to do a terrible job at everything. And so um, the moment, the forcing function for that for me was, um, you know, I was doing that crazy schedule and then I kind of hit a breaking point and I said, I need a vacation. And I booked a trip to Europe with a friend of mine. And I was trying to figure out how I would run this agency, which you know had all these North American clients while I was in Europe for a month. And I kind of said, um, you know, fuck it. I'm going to just go to my college roommate, this really awesome guy named Mark, who is still one of my good friends. And I said, um, hey, dude, do you want to you want to run Metal Lab while I'm gone? Can you can you do all the sales calls and kind of see if the projects can keep on running? And honestly, my thesis was very simple. Mark was a nice guy and he was good on the phone and people generally liked him. It was as simple as that. Yeah. And so I had Mark shadow me on a few calls and uh, you know I showed him how everything worked and logged him into all this stuff. And after a few weeks of that, I, I left to Europe and I said, look, don't call me unless there's an emergency. And I went away for a month and I honestly expected to come back with everything in shambles and have to do a lot of damage control. But when I came back, I realized that he'd closed a bunch of work and all the projects had gone really well. And from that moment on, I I never really fully came back to MetaLab. I Mm. would only get involved when I was absolutely needed. And I still played the function of the closer. So I was the very high level sales guy 
Um, you know, I would fly down to San Francisco with Mark to help him close a bigger deal, but most deals would go through him and no one would ever deal with me. Um, and that was kind of the evolution. And then at a certain point I realized that, Hey, I'm still playing a role here that's still needed. Um, and we really need somebody to help take this to the very next level. None of us knew how to take this from a you know, $5 million agency to a $100 million agency. And so that's when we hired a CEO. But that took um, seven or eight years of operating before we hired a CEO. Yeah, that's a really interesting... Uh, it's funny to see that you, like, you get backed into a corner and like you have to take that leap and then it's not as bad as you thought, right? Like, totally. So- so was there a well, feeling? It's like firing. It's like firing someone, right? You always say like, "Oh, I can't. I could never lose this person." And at the end of the day, like if if somebody has to leave or it's not a fit, there's you know almost always someone else who can come in, and it's never bad as you think, and you wish you'd done it sooner. Did Did you feel like? Um, I'm sure there's a lot. You touched on a couple of them, but like the emotional challenge of going through and like delegating some of these things, especially when it's like the agency is you that you're selling and you're creative problem solving or design skills or whatever it is, is, is that like, like, what is that bundle of emotions? And did you have to like work through that? Did you kind of like leap and then figure out that it wasn't as bad as you thought? Um, you know, I, I think some people, and I, I've done this before for sure, like carry guilt about like, if you're not doing like a masochistic level of hard work, you know, like, do you, do you deserve the rewards that come with it? Are you making clients happy if you're not like really giving your all like some of those kind of, kind of emotional tangles. I think that was my evolution was, um, you know, looking at people like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and um, uh, some of these guys or Zuckerberg who have gone from, you know, starting their company in a garage to running, you know, a hundred billion dollar business and they've taken it the whole way through. And I think most people think they should be like that. Mm -hmm. And in reality, I'd say they're one in a million and that most founders are good at a certain point and they kind of tap out. So for me, it was, I love the original idea. Um, I love starting things. I love excitement. Um, and I like wartime. So if there's like something I need to come in and yeah. fix and, you know, take names and all that kind of stuff, I do really well with. But I lose focus very quickly. I'm I'm somebody who does well. Um, you know, you look at my bedside table and I've got, 20 books, right? I like always having a lot of different things, a lot of ideas and a lot of um, balls of clay to play with. Mm-hmm. And so I be, I'm actually a bad CEO because I have too much trouble single tracking on one company. And so what I had to realize over time was I couldn't whip myself into becoming Peter Drucker, exceptional manager. That just yeah. wasn't me. And that ultimately I needed to have a really great counterpart to do the follow through. And so Originally, that was hiring, um, you know, Mark to do project management and sales. Um, you know, hiring a VP of engineering, hiring a you know VP of design, and starting to really build a machine and some process, so that at the end of the day, my job as CEO wasn't really to do any one specific task. That it was a machine where I would feed opportunity into it or marketing into it. So I would go out and I would write a medium post that was, you know, inflammatory in some way, get a bunch of attention. Leads would come in the top and they would convert out into the bottom as money. And I hadn't done any of the execution. Um, You know, other people had taken the lead, qualified it, won the work, completed the work, shipped the product, et cetera. Um, And, you know, maybe at one point I talked to the client and checked in or socially met them for lunch to build, you know, a relationship or something, but I wasn't um, responsible for any work product. Um, And that was a big breakthrough for me. Um, I mean, the other thing I always like to like think about is like I, one of the periods where we've grew the most and made the most money was a period where I was drinking four nights a week. Um, sleeping in until 1 p.m., uh, basically totally checked out of day-to-day operations and working two or three hours a day, right? I had this period where I was I was single, I was in my early 20s, I was being irresponsible and kind of checked yeah. out and lazy. I'd worked really hard for five years. And what I noticed was the less I worked and the more I delegated, the better all the businesses did. Um, and so I don't advocate doing it that way. You know, I don't drink anymore, but I don't advocate going out and just getting wasted every night, but it was certainly another example where, 
there was a forcing function of me getting distracted and I had to delegate. Otherwise I would stop making money. Yeah. That, there's a, there's a couple things in there. One, um, one is, I mean, I think the power of just kind of knowing what your strengths are. There's something that we talk about in the course as, you know, doing the things only you can do. You know, what, what is the highest leverage use of your time? And for you, it sounded like, you know, that was, that was marketing, that was, bringing in new business and then like letting the machine kind of take it from there that you had built. Um, but the other is kind of like the lead into that is, is the building of the machine itself, right? Like that is something you had to do kind of bolt by bolt, right? So that that was there for the leads or that that, that was five years of hard work so that you could take that time. But, but what are the attributes of, you know, what makes that machine high leverage so that when you take time off or you can delegate it, um, you know, those, those tasks or those processes are delegatable versus something that like falls apart when you stop paying attention to it. Well, I mean, the hardest thing is not swooping in and saving people. So one of the problems I had in the early days as I delegated is I would go into our project management software and I'd start randomly checking in with different people, or I'd say, oh, I want to listen in on a client phone call, or I want to review this before it goes out. And I realized I did no favors. What actually, the hardest part about delegation is that you need to let them put out their own fires. So it's very difficult to watch someone you've delegated to fuck up, to deliver bad client work, to be off deadline, um, whatever it is. But the important thing is the client rips into them. They get negative feedback. They learn from that and they go, okay, well, now I'm going to get better and improve. And then helping them do that. Uh, it goes back to like, you know, teaching a man to fish versus handing them a fish, big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the, you know, in the early days, that's the hardest part of building the machine. Um, when, outside of that, it just comes down to having exceptional people. And what I've learned over time is that when you hire people who have never existed in a similar machine, they're terrible. So hiring for potential works one in five times, maybe if you're lucky. I got really lucky with Mark, for example, um, but I've had another four or five you know, people for every one that have been disasters. And so um, what, I, what I ended up doing wasn't even building the process. What I did was I went out and I looked at other agencies that were bigger than us and I poached their head of sales. I poached the head of HR, et cetera, and built, that, built out a team of people who naturally knew how to do those functions. And it was almost like the machine built itself and the processes kind of fell into place. Yeah, I, I've heard you phrase that before as like hire someone who has already done what you're hiring them to do, which I think is like such a simple and like brilliant thing that like you can boil down a lot of hiring advice to that. And I if you do that successfully, like, you know, the rest kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, think about like, I, I you know, I always say this to people like, People always come to me and they're like, oh, should I learn to code? And I'm like, well, do you have a passion for coding? Have you always been obsessed with like math and logic and, you know, all this kind of stuff? And often they say, no, like, I don't think that's what I want to do long term, but I want to be a tech CEO. And I always think like real estate developers don't know what stonemasons do. They don't know how to pour concrete. They don't know how to hammer two by fours. They know how, what the high level thing they're trying to achieve is. And then they hire component people within that to achieve their goal. Um, and I think the same is true. Like you could spend two years reading up on sales or you could hire a really pro salesperson, right? And let them build that sales process. I think that makes a lot more sense. And if you put me into any part of my business, almost any of the business, except for maybe hardcore engineering, I could probably muddle my way through and do fine. And I know what it what it looks like now, mm-hmm. but I had a lot of success with just hiring smart people who had done it before. Were, were you surprised? Um, were you surprised at the caliber of people that you could hire, like from from larger agencies to to come work with you? I think it's hard. It's kind of chicken or the egg because when I started hiring really exceptional people, I also had a profile by that point. And I could a I could afford to pay them, and b uh, you know I had a reputation by that point. In the early days, I just hired all my friends. I'd yeah. hire friends, I'd hire, you know, girlfriends and boyfriends of friends and extended yeah. network or random kids that I met, you know, who interned with us. And it was just a disaster because a very small 
um, percentage of them worked out. And I, I was really bad at firing people. So I would just keep all these people who weren't really didn't know what they're doing. And we were collectively like a kid's soccer team where there's just a big circle of kids running around a ball <laughs> in total chaos. It's it's very Canadian of you, yes. Uh, which is it's more polite to just pay them, even though they're doing a bad job. We'll just keep exactly. <laughs> I think I think it took me probably five or six years of running my company before I personally fired anyone. It is. Uh, I was avoiding it that that much. It is hard, and it's scary, and it's you know it's guilt inducing, and um, especially when it's like you know. I think a lot of leaders say it's my fault. Like I couldn't make this person successful in this role, and now they're having to suffer because we couldn't create the context for them or, you know, I failed to set expectations correctly somehow. Um, I, I feel like well, that's like, probably... It's like ending a bad romantic relationship. Like, you know, you both feel it. Yeah. You know it's not working out. It's more humane to just be really empathetic and talk about what's happening. I, I think lowering the the fear of firing somebody can make it easier to hire them in the first place, right? Like I think that big fear is like, well, what if it doesn't work out? Is is it what prevents us from delegating in the first place? Totally. At least one of the one of the few. Um, so I, I want to go back a little bit to the like, I mean, who who you're hiring and and you have like high caliber people now that you have access to. So what's your counsel for for maybe somebody who? or you're spinning up a new business or they don't yet have the economics or the profile to afford somebody who's really, you know, done it before, been there, done that track record. Is it, is it worth it in your estimation to like, you know, invest and like maybe even negative cash flow for a minute to get that talent in the business that is really going to help them get to the next level? Like, is that an investment worth making, worth taking on a little bit of additional risk for? Well, I think, um, if you have a lemonade stand, you know, you should really run the lemonade stand yourself and learn the component parts well enough that you will be able to know what it looks like when someone's good at that. Um, so it's a little bit hard to tease out exactly when is the right time to go and, you know, pay up for people. One of the big mistakes I made is I would hear what someone's total comp was. Um, you know, I heard, you know, $200,000. It's like, oh, oh my God, that's unthinkable. How could I ever afford that? And not understand that, you know, 80 grand of that was base salary and 120 grand was variable bonus and equity and other stuff. Um, and so, you know, I think what a lot of people miss is that you can structure incentives and comp in a way where they're only getting paid that big amount if you're doing well. Mm-hmm. And that was something I completely missed, honestly, probably until four or five years ago. Um, was just align alignment of incentives because I would look around and go, you know, I'm happy to work until seven to get all these projects done and shipped. And I'm always trying to sell more projects or I'm trying to close more work or, you know, whatever it is. Um, why is no one else pushing as hard as I am? And I had read all these silly books. Um, there's one, I think it was by, oh, Punished by Rewards, which kind of states that people are intrinsically motivated and that, you know, you don't, you shouldn't use financial incentives in creative businesses. And I agree with that to some degree. Like, I think if you've got a great designer, just pay them what they want to get paid and don't attach money to their work necessarily. But when it comes to salespeople and, you know, finance people and executives, you need them to win when you win, right? And you need them to make less money when you make less money too, um, so I totally missed that. Um, and it took me a long time to realize, you know, how to do that. So what are, what are your practices now for, um, for your CEOs? And I, I don't know if you get involved with comp below like the executive level, um, at tiny, but what, what is it like, what is, if you have a new business set up or that you just buy, like, how do you arrange that comp with that executive now? We mostly focus on CEO comp. And we do look at the executive comp a little bit, depending on the business and the size of it. Um, We have kind of set policies around, you know, if someone's in one of our agency businesses, we have certain rules of thumb of how much of their comp should be variable in different positions and stuff. Um, But there's no hard and fast rule. Every CEO has a slightly different comp structure. Um, Generally, it's risk reward, right? If someone wants to make a lot of money, I'm going to ask them to take more risk. and that yeah. goes for equity as well. If someone's willing to cut a check to buy equity, I will happily give them equity, but there's no free equity because that doesn't create alignment. Sure. 
Um, so one more um, kind of in, in this neighborhood of like hiring and finding the right people um, and back to the concept of leverage, like I've heard you say before that you, you were running a hundred person company and you were, you were miserable because you were like in the trenches operating, like just, you know, in the software, tons of meetings. Um, and that now, you know, you've got 20 plus companies in your portfolio and communication is really limited, uh, which we'll get into in a second, but was that big shift? Um, was it the actual who of that you were hiring and those, that those people were really high agency? Was it, or was it the role itself? Was it like, well, I finally made the leap of hiring a CEO and that CEO is like responsible for this whole unit of business. Um, or was it neither of those? It was really a behavior change in you that led that shift. What happened was I built MetaLab into a machine, but then while I was doing that, I was also kind of pseudo CEO. And then mm-hmm. over here, I also had all these software businesses and other stuff that I'd spun up. Mm-hmm. And those didn't have full executive teams yet, and they were too early. And so yeah. I was jumping around from thing to thing and just kind of a little unfocused. Um, and the moment, the big shift for me was actually the idea of hiring a CEO and yeah. handing them the keys and saying, I trust you and you're in charge and don't call me unless there's an emergency and let's talk quarterly or, you know, call me when you need me, but I'm not going to check in with you. Um, and there's very few instances today that we will intervene or even reach out to a CEO for a call. I, there's some CEOs that I haven't spoken to for months. So is that, um, is that part, is that something you would have done earlier in retrospect is like, I just want to delegate a whole business unit and all of those problems at like that. There's a magic lever, like a, there's a step function of leverage, I guess, that comes with like, I'm bundling this whole business and it's your problem now. Like, it's not like I'm the CEO and you're the COO and you're trying to be CEO of 20 different companies right now. I think if you delegate that out too early, you end up as like a VC, right? Or a VC or private equity, um, uh, executive. Most most people that are investors are professional investors who have never run a business. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you run a business and you look at things through an operating lens, you are much better at it and you have a lot more empathy. So I can look at our businesses and go, man, I wish they'd launched this feature and done this. And you know, why haven't they tweaked the website yet? Mm-hmm. Um, but I can have a lot of empathy that it's easy to pick uh, at a business from the exterior and that at the end of the day, businesses are complex groups of people and you yeah. know, there's other priorities. And so um, because of that, I think I'm able to give our CEOs a lot more leeway and understanding um, versus somebody who's never been in a business before where it's a spreadsheet. You know, why aren't your margins 5% higher? You know, yeah. it's a spreadsheet. Uh, why haven't you launched this feature? It's easy. It's just some code, right? Yeah. I, I think people um, just have less experience. And so... I think there's a lot of benefit to stumbling around, sticking forks in electrical sockets and learning, you know, as long as you're not getting fatally electrocuted, I think it's very (laughs) beneficial to have that experience and um, have the operating, um, you know, under our belt that we can, that we can look at it that way. So um, I, I totally agree with that. I think that's you know it, almost any operating experience gives you a ton like more more empathy for for everybody around. And um, I always like Buffett's quote: like being an investor made me a better operator, being an operator made me a better investor. I think that's that's super true. Totally. Um, I guess looking at your you know the new companies that you spin up or buy, are, are you just a little more aggressive about? how early you delegate like the whole operations of that business to a CEO than certainly than you were with MetaLab. I mean, that was a pretty big business. It sounds like by the time you, you actually hired a CEO. Yeah. I mean, now I've gotten, I've gotten, I mean, first of all, so I'll spin up maybe one to five businesses a year, um, usually born out of some, you know, scratching an itch that I have, uh, or one of our businesses has or something like that. Um, and those I'm pretty good at, um, doing a very, very small amount of work to launch. So I'm almost always not launching it until I have a CEO. Um, I risk along with me, so I might be the financial partner. Um, and I, I'll help promote the business, but at the end of the day, someone else is responsible for it and equity aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those I look at as just kind of almost hobby projects. Um, but I mean, there's some of, some businesses that I've launched over the last year where 
collectively I've maybe spent four hours on them, right? From kind of idea to identifying a CEO, structuring their incentives, and then helping them launch. And that's basically it. Um, so, you know, only because I've had the last 15 years of experience, can I do yeah. that? But it's a cool thing to be able to get that much leverage, right? Yeah. I think that's a really, um, I, I've heard Naval kind of talk about that Genesis process of, let me just like put the starting conditions of a business together too, and then see what happens. I think those are, those are really fun. And I would love to kind of, um, talk through one of those examples. Maybe I think, I think like what we're doing is plugging together like a few forms of leverage at once, you know, capital and people and the tools and, and the products. And um, I don't know, maybe pick a, a recent example that you're excited about and uh, yeah. we, we can talk through so what the actual one, pieces one, were that you brought together. One of the hardest things about running a group of companies is that you get kind of enticed by synergy. So, um, you know, we looked, for example, across all of our P&Ls and we were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a month with Amazon on EC2 and S3. And Chris and I started brainstorming and we said, oh man, if we got everyone together, we could negotiate this collectively and you know all this other stuff. Um, but over and over and over again, we've learned that that's the wrong thing to do. That when you go to a CEO and you dictate, hey, we're going to, you know, you're totally in control, but we're going to take this piece from you or we're going to make you waste your time on a phone call you don't want to be on to mm -hmm. figure this out. Um, they start to resent us. And so, um, and, and then the other thing was we knew that if we we're going to do that, we didn't want to have to build that procurement arm in as part of head office. And so we said, well, this is a business that should exist. We looked around. We couldn't find a business that did this. And um, we started using this guy um, to help us negotiate random stuff. So, you know, if we're buying, um, you know, making big purchases, you know, at head office, I would just go to this guy, Kimia, who I knew, who loved to negotiate. And I'd say, look, I'll give you 20% of whatever you save. Yeah. And he just became my go-to. And he was amazing. He was really good at not being a jerk but getting us really good discounts. And so um, we together spun up this business called Buyer. And the idea was, hey, this is the problem we have as a group, but we're not going to build it at head office. We're going to build this company and none of the companies are obligated to use them. And, and this company lives and dies based on its own P&L. So if Kimia isn't sourcing leads from within the tiny portfolio, he's going to have to go find those elsewhere on the internet. Um, and so that's a form of, we're kind of, you know, doing, uh, we're finding a, a problem that we have, we're solving it for ourselves, but at the same time, we're creating this independent business uh, and we're not synergizing. Yeah. Without, without creating an obligation for the other portfolio companies that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wonder, uh, th this is another thing that I was curious about that you kind of have, have led me into like, what is, what is the role of the agencies for the other portfolio companies? Like, are, are they kind of drawing resources or like no yeah. expectations whatsoever? Wow. We learned that the hard way with, um, when we first started, um, flow and ballpark, our software businesses, we, they were originally part of MetaLab. So we were using MetaLab resources. And what we realized was that, um, when a big client comes along and says, Hey, we have a deadline, you ultimately always have to favor the client over your own internal pro pro uh, projects. And so what happened, you know, someone would be demanding the developers yeah. would, you know, leave the software project for two months. We lose all our progress. Meanwhile, our competition is getting better and better and better. And it just does no favors. And so my, in my opinion, Every product, every business has to be able to stand on its own two feet 100%. Um, the opportunity cost is just too high of trying to combine those. So even today, we don't, um, we don't force any of the companies to use our agencies. If, some, if they want to use a different agency or build that internally, uh, we encourage them to. And we don't offer any discounts because I don't want an executive at MetaLab saying, well, I didn't get my bonus because Andrew made me work with a, you know, this company at a discount. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very fair. Um, and, and interesting. I think a lot from the outside, a lot of people would think like, oh yeah, the agency's right there. Like that makes perfect sense. Um, it, I think the agencies are an interesting topic from the perspective of leverage too, because I think, um, people, when we think of people leverage, we think of like mostly employees, right? Like that's the default. Um, but there's so many ways to access 
people and expertise now and agencies are, are a huge kind of form of that. Like, do you think of, and you've got Meta Lab, uh, which is like product design and development and 8020 now, which is a new kind of no code agency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think of, and we use talk about this in the course as, as agencies are a way to kind of access with a limited scope and fixed kind of expectations without the obligation of employment and ongoing expectations um, to get access to skills that you might not have. Is that like, does that resonate with what clients come to you for? Does that sound like um, any of the ways that you present yourself? Um, like that, that yeah, service? I mean, so, I mean, we own multiple agencies mostly because Metalab got so popular mm-hmm. that um, we couldn't service small clients anymore. And so, uh, what we ended up doing is, you know, we realized we we're like, okay, we can't do any project less than say 250k, and so we went out and we acquired a company in Spain, a really really amazing agency called Z1, um, mm. and then we started saying, okay, now we're going to refer all of our work that's too small to Z1, and then Z1 got busy, and we went, oh man, you know, Z1 can't do projects less than 50k, so let's go and start 8020. So now we have kind of three different service offerings for different uh, scales of business. Um, yeah, I think agencies at the end of the day um, provide um, something really key, which is like a, a team that is fully assembled before they would be able to get that internally. So what we've always said to people is, look, we're not going to build your project for or your product for 10 years, but if you're a startup that's raised 10 million bucks and just you know, the firing pistol just went off. Um, you can get started on day five with us. And then as you hire your team, you can transition to an in-house team. But you don't want to lose that six months or year that it's going to take to recruit people. And then on the flip side, if you're a Fortune 500 uh, company, you're simply just not going to be able to attract the best talent. You might be able to get talent, but they're not going to be the best. And so we have one of the best product design teams in the world. You know, we've done, uh, you know, hundreds of uh, startup projects and apps and all sorts of stuff. And so when you have that reputation, you can charge a premium to have access to that kind of talent and pace. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting, um, I think that's a key thing. And we, we see like that evolving constantly between like new agencies, new forms of contracting, like task-based marketplaces. There's just a lot of ways to access talent other than straight one-to-one full employment. Um, that I think is like a very healthy thing to remember for, for people, especially when they're getting started. Um, one of the, I want to kind of do a, like a little chapter of, of capital allocation here, because I think, you know, you're now basically a full-time investor, um, you know, whether you're spinning up companies or, or reallocating, but from your perch, um, I think it's interesting, like the range of options that you have, like you can direct capital into operations, and like reinvest in companies, you can acquire new companies, you can spin up new ones. Um, and then you have this whole world of, of like public market or angel investing available to you also. Like how, how do you compare different rates of return, different options like across your, your internal portfolio, your hypothetical, you know, next acquisition or spinning up a new company? Like that seems like almost an impossible set of comparisons or problems or, or risk assessments to make. There's something about my psychology where I like to know that I control the bank account that the money goes into. So while I do look at public market investing a little bit, generally I find I I want to own the business or control the business. Um, so we've generally favored private investing. Sure. Um, in terms of how we direct the capital within the group. So, I mean, obviously if um, let's say we own a business and if they were to spend a million dollars on customer acquisition on, on Facebook and Instagram this year, they could you know, pay themselves back triple within six months, right? So that turns into $3 million of revenue. Uh, in that instance, that's a great investment. We want them to keep the capital. What we've seen is that most of our businesses grow organically um, and they don't require additional capital. And so um, you, we can usually harvest out the cash and send it up to head office. The one exception might be if we're doing a bolt-on acquisition. So for example, Dribbles made a few of those recently where there's strategic opportunities that they've seen where if they build it themselves, it'll take three years uh, and they can just go and acquire a great business like Creative Market, which they just closed uh, about six months ago. Um, 
Outside of that, we'll look at share repurchases. So if one of the founders uh, that we bought from or some other outside shareholder has stayed on the cap table and they want liquidity and they want to sell at a fair price, then we'll buy back their shares. And otherwise, then it goes back to head office and it sits in the bank waiting for you know the, our next acquisition. And, and an acquisition is, um, a net new private acquisition is where the bulk of that capital goes. Imagine like yeah. the companies that you're spinning up, I, we can talk a little bit about the mechanics of it, but I don't imagine that's like a huge pile of cash, right? That's no, yeah. we, I mean, we do, I do, um, personally, like maybe a couple million dollars, two or $3 million a year, uh, on venture. And then maybe another million dollars on like kind of just projects, spinning up little random businesses, or, you know, I've been doing a bunch of news businesses, um, and, and just kind of, you know, starting new stuff. And those are, you know, one in five will turn into a sizable business. Uh, I hope not to lose money, but I really do it because I just love starting companies. And I love that early stage. Uh, and I've found a way to do it where it doesn't require much of my time. Yeah, that Capital Daily example, um, I thought was really, really interesting. You went into it a little on, on my first million. So I don't want to rehash it in detail here, but I thought that was a really cool, um, I mean, just kind of bolting together like, Here's the tools. Actually, like that was a great use of another agency, right? Like that was, was that a tiny agency or was that a separate one? Or were you talking through? Well, it didn't really require, it didn't really require an agency. It was such an easy business to start because at the end of the day, we just needed to send out a MailChimp. And so I had a, a freelancer who I work with sometimes and I said, Hey, can you make this look nice? Find a template, yeah. um, you know, make a landing page. And then I found a Facebook agency that we use for advertising. And I said, hey, you know, I'm going to spend a thousand bucks a day to acquire some emails. Um, and that was that. And then I had a writer and, you know, suddenly we had a business. Um, so, no, I didn't. I haven't used our own agencies for many of those projects. Do, do you create like, is that a separate business from day one? Like new bank account, new name, like stand and go stand on your Usually own? Usually we keep it. I keep it in a, a holding company called okay. um, like, it's like a business development holding company. It's like a, we just start, start new stuff in it. And like yeah. half of it is, you know, it's spaghetti being thrown at the wall. And as soon as a piece sticks, then we'll separately incorporate it. But a okay. lot of it is just kind of kept in a holding company. That's I do the same thing. So that makes me feel better about, about, about <laughs> my process. I was like, I wonder if that's kosher at all. Um, so one of the other, uh, like forms, I think of, of people leverage, you know, you, you've hired CEOs, you built agencies. These are like uh, masterful things, which you are also at the same time, like building quite an audience. I mean, you, you said before, like that helps you kind of hire more high level talent. It has helped find, I assume, attract deal flow. Um, I, I guess just talk through like, what does that happen naturally for you? Was there a moment where you were like, wow, I definitely like this really puts the wind at my back. I'm going to invest in this. Um, I guess how, how does like that piece break down? Uh, well, I've always been a bit of a, a windbag and, you know, I like people listening to what I'm talking about and <laughs> if I'm in a social circumstance or social situation. I'll often be the loudest person in the room. So there's an element of that just naturally I'm outspoken. Um, but what I realized as I started writing was that when I would write something that people thought was interesting, we would always start getting more and more work, especially if it was a little polarizing. Um, so for example, in my early days of starting my agency, one of the best ways I acquired clients was I would do these teardowns where I'd redesign websites. So I redesigned Facebook, I redesigned Zappos. And I'd always write like a piece about how bad, you know, why does this look like this? This is horrible. And it was a little tongue in cheek. I knew, you know, like I said earlier, it's easy to criticize from the outside. There's a reason why they'd done what they'd done. Um, but uh, it always caused a big stink. It got on Hacker News. It was polarizing. And some people would see the redesign I did and think it was really good. And we'd always get a whole bunch of work as a result. And so we've just continued to um, use that strategy in everything that we do. And at Tiny, um, you know, I think a lot of our deals come through our network, people that we know, people that trust us, people that have sold businesses to us, recommend us to people. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, a lot of leads come from being outspoken, being on podcasts and having a Twitter following and stuff. And I'm lucky in that I naturally like to do this stuff. Um, so yeah. it's, it's a bonus, but I mean, otherwise I'd have to be like a traditional private equity firm and have a bunch of interns, you know, cold emails 
emailing people, which I think is no fun. Um, so yeah. Um, it, it, there's a definitely like a, every, every lever carries a risk, right? Like, you know, if, if you get over levered on debt and you go the wrong, it goes the wrong way. Like you're now the same force that was working for you is now working against you. Right. I think the same is, the same is, has to be true of all forms of leverage. Um, so I guess, how do you see like the risks associated with building an audience with hiring, with delegating, like, and, and how do you maybe work ahead to mitigate those risks or um, de-risk them, like either the worst case scenario or, or or just be sure that you're getting the right side of that? One of the one of the biggest risks is um, unethical people, uh, which we've dealt with, and uh, it's it's crazy, right? We've we've hired some people where um, you know they were defrauding us or doing yeah. you know in some instances illegal things and it was like oh my god there's a fox in the hen house and we needed to make an immediate change yeah. um, but over time we've gotten a lot better at just verifying people um, and running a process when we hire a key person where we validate their background and everything that they say say they've done and that has generally I would say we work with you know very high quality people now there's no one in the organization that I wouldn't feel comfortable uh, having, you know, something like that. Um, and then the other thing is incentive misalignment. And I think mm-hmm. that's the most pernicious where in, the wrong incentives can cause good people to do bad things um, or at least work against you. Um, and we've seen, you know, all sorts of different things happen there where, um, you know, everything uh, from, uh, you know, having an annual budget that we are holding people to and their their comp is tied to that. And then they have this incentive to always be hyper conservative and say that we're not going to grow and be, it actually creates a negativity where they mm-hmm. want to be as negative as possible to us so that we'll agree to a low budget so they can blow it, you know, and then they yeah. say, Oh, it surprised us. We blew the doors <laughs> off and now we get triple our bonuses or whatever. Um, that's one example where you can have someone almost working against you as a result. Um, and again, these are lessons we've learned and corrected. Um, and then, you know, there's stuff like uh, people get used to making a certain amount of money. And then if you have a bad year, they don't, don't want to suffer with you, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, when you go to them and you say, Hey, we had a horrible year. And, you know, I know last year you made 400 grand, but this year you're going to make 200. And they're going, Well, geez, I put my kids in private school and I bought a new car. And, you know, people don't, I, for some reason, I think people struggle with that a little bit. Um, so some of these things can be really challenging to navigate. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's incredibly valuable. I think it's, I think it's, uh, all this stuff is mitigated by the level of, uh, you know, leverage you can get and how much you can achieve with, uh, by using other people. Yeah. I, th- I think, uh, you know, one of the things that Naval has said is that the, the risk is much lower than like our genes tell us it is like the, our perception, our fear, uh, like just floods our brain with fight or flight for some of these decisions that are really not life or death at all. You know, the worst case scenario, you know, embezzlement is, is zero fun, but it is not life or death. No. And I know, I know people where they've learned the wrong lesson. So they've delegated mm-hmm. something and it's gone bad. And if, you know, maybe it, they've had a traumatic experience or really yeah. hired a horrible person or whatever it is. Um, but Munger talks about how the most important thing in life is just picking yourself back up and moving along. And I think um, certain people will burn the hand on the stove and then they'll say, I'm never cooking again. Right. Yeah. And that's not the right lesson. The lesson is, hey, maybe, you know, use a glove next time or be a little <laughs> more careful. Don't stop cooking. Um, and that, you know, that's what's happened to us. We've gotten burned and we've got some scars, but we've learned a lot from those things. Yeah. And and what about on the audience side? Like, you know, especially as you've discovered, like being a little contentious and a little divisive, like is a tactic that works. Do you do you worry about you know, the backlash of those things or, you know, um, or is that just like, there's, there's bad, but with the bad comes the good. And, you know, that kind of tends to equal out in the long run anyway. I think I'm lucky that my audience is tech. And so I'm just talking about silly things that don't matter. I'm being contentious (laughs) about a design issue or something versus some societal problem. Um, I, I think it, the hardest part is being misunderstood. I, at the end of the day, I really want everyone to like me. 
I'm the kind of person where I need to leave every interaction with someone feeling like, hey, I've won them over. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't do that when you have 100, you know, 120,000 followers on Twitter. And there's always going to be someone who disagrees or thinks you're a jerk or misinterprets what you're saying. And then there's times where you legitimately mess up. There's times where I've tweeted and it's just come across the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel feel bad about it. Um, and I, I've really debated that because I know many people who are very quietly successful and, uh, you know, they live a nice life and stuff. Um, but the pros have so far outweighed the cons that, you know, I, I think it's so worthwhile being on Twitter, going on podcasts, living my life a little more out in the open has just benefited all of our businesses. It's benefited me personally. I've gotten to meet all these incredible people as a result. Um, every once in a while I do get you know, a crazy email from someone or someone thinks I'm a huge jerk on Twitter or I even went viral. I talked about the work we did with Slack and someone misinterpreted it as me taking credit for all of all of Slack. And I got roasted, like absolutely roasted and like thousands of retweets and likes and pylons. And I still get people criticizing me about it. And that feels really shitty. That's one day out of the year. And the rest of the year, I feel pretty good. Yeah, that's that's that like... That's the long lever, you know, pushing back, right? That's the like the downside of it. Um, and and if you, you know, in the broad scheme of things, you could take take a hit like that and be like, this is still worth it. It's still worth doing. There's still plenty of good people out there that that understand how this works, and that you know, there's always negative interpretations and there's always you know blowback. Um, I think that's that's totally. encouraging. Well, and that helpful. goes internally too. I mean, when you have, uh, I don't know, I think we have 700 employees or something like that mm-hmm. now. I think there's always going to be someone who's skeptical of you or, you know, skeptical of your motives or something like that. And you do lose friends, right? You know, I, when I started my businesses, I was, all my best friends worked in the company, right? I would go out drinking with them. They were my buddies. And then over time that just wasn't feasible anymore. And I had to really distance myself and that's hard. So you do, one of the biggest challenges about this transition is you do lose friends. Yeah. That's, that's tough. Um, an interesting story. So uh, I've got a few more kind of like ones a little bit more on the personal, um, like how you use leverage personally, and then uh, and then I think we can wrap. Um, I, I this has been awesome. I got a page and a half of notes here, um, so I, I really appreciate this. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what were maybe some of the highest leverage decisions or like big breaks? Um, that, that you kind of got over the course of your career, maybe maybe looking back, those big step functions. Are the things well, I think that- getting first of all getting a C a CFO right. Mm. So I, I realized pretty quickly I'm not I'm not the best person with numbers and accounting, and I had needed somebody to do the details. That that mm. was not me. And so when I hired Chris, who now is my business partner, as my first CFO, uh, which I got very lucky on going back to hiring random people, I just bet him at a bank. He was, he was working behind the desk of the bank and I was filling out a credit application. I hit it off with him and I just said on the spot, do you want to be my CFO? Because he had an accounting degree. Uh, so that was one where I got lucky. Um, but when I hired Chris, it was like, it was like a glass of ice water in hell. I was like, Oh my God, there's this whole 50% of my business life. He can just think about, and I trust him and he can, you know, he can run that now. That was massive. Um, Getting a personal assistant, I always thought of kind of as a douchey thing. But when I did it, it was incredibly nice to have somebody to shield me from just day-to-day administrative tasks. Um, so, you know, when my car insurance goes out, I'm not dealing with it. When someone wants to schedule something with me, I'm not dealing with it. It creates a bit of a, a shield around me, which has been really valuable. Um, and then we also, uh, we, have a, we have another partner, Jeremy, and Jeremy runs all our M&A. And so when a deal comes into Tiny, you know, we've kind of built another machine. When a deal comes in, Jeremy and his team is going to screen it and it'll get to me quickly if it makes sense. But I'm never going to see a deal where he doesn't, you know, see something. Maybe it's not a business we would ever buy or not something we understand or not a fair price. It's just not going to come to me at all. Um, So those have been kind of the key things. And I always think it's other people making decisions for you where you can have a simple algorithm to kind of mm-hmm. predictably say, this is where where you should say yes and elevate it to me. And if not, no. Um, Tim Ferriss has a really good way of doing it. I think he says, 
anything under X dollars, you guys can just make the decision and I trust you. Yeah. You know, once in a while you might be annoyed that, you know, they paid someone too much money for something, but it just saves you so much brain damage. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good one. Do you have a, a fixed like hourly rate in your head for your time or, or for like a problem that is like your, at your attention threshold? Or is that not no. something you said explicitly? I don't really think about, I don't think about it in terms of hourly rate or something like that, but I think um, the decisions have to be like, they have to be million dollar decisions, like bigger, bigger yeah. decisions now with the scale we're at. Um, and smaller stuff. I, I don't get me wrong. I occasionally will deep dive into a business. Um, I would think of that as a swoop and poop where I shouldn't do it, uh, <laughs> where I'm not yeah. going to be helpful. But every once in a while, there's some little thing. Just this morning, I was looking at someone's comp in one of the businesses and I realized that it was capped and I was mm. going, why is this capped? This is crazy. It's a swoop and poop, but it's slightly positive. So I, I do that once <laughs> in a while. Um, but usually it's like, you know, are we going to go and write a you know, $20 million check to buy this business. Yeah. Are we going to hire this executive for, you know, it's quite a, you know, sizable amount of money or whatever. Um, so it's just, sure. it's just figuring that out. When, uh, when did you add your, your assistant? This is something I think a lot of people think about or talk about or, or feel like they need. And it's something that could be, I think, pretty close to universally helpful for people, but it's also an intimidating jump and a big investment in, you know, not just cost, but training and trust is, is huge. Right. So like, what was that process like? And when did you 20, do it? 2011, 2012. Okay. Um, and at first I didn't really know what they would do. Um, and then all of a sudden I just realized there's so much stuff in my kind of brain that I hadn't put down on paper that I had been meaning to do forever. Everything from home renovations and random. I mean, if you look at the, um, the best way to do it is David, whether or not you use getting things done, David Allen's kind of productivity system, he's got this great PDF called a trigger document and you just look at it and it reminds you of all the potential things you could do. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like maintaining your house through to commitments at work and meetings you're supposed to set up and stuff. And so I just started going through that once a week and delegating stuff to the assistant. And I was shocked by how busy they became. Mm -hmm. um, and the cool thing with assistants is um, it's great to have someone in person, obviously, if you've got stuff happening locally. But you can find someone in the Philippines for 600 bucks. And in, in the Philippines, 600 bucks is a very, very good salary. Uh, and people are very eager to do that stuff. So, um, you know, even if you think you can't afford an assistant, you probably can. Yeah, I, I like the line, like, if you can't afford it, or if you haven't hired an assistant, just means you're you're doing all of that stuff right now. Like, <laughs> if you can't afford you're your it, own assistant, you're your own assistant. Totally. And it goes back to like, um, you know, if you've got eight hours in the day and you're going to spend two hours on scheduling and, you know, silly things like that. Um, you know, you're just not valuing your own time. You're not doing the math. You're literally mm -hmm. throwing away, you know, let's call it $500 uh, per day in your time. Did, did you, uh, how did you hire that? Did you follow your process and hire somebody who had been an assistant previously? Was this like a full-time role that you took I on? Actually, that I, by that point, I actually would do a job, um, post a job on a job board, okay. get some people to apply, go through that interview, a bunch of people. Um, and I hired a, a wonderful woman who now runs HR actually at Metalab. Um, uh, she was she was phenomenal and just very. She was so it was so obvious to me that she was going to go on to do bigger stuff, and so we promoted her quite quickly. Um, but uh, right now, Chris and I have, have we like our assistant. I won't even say her name because I don't want anyone to steal her from us. But she's absolutely incredible. Uh, makes Chris and I's life a million times better. Um, so we're very lucky to have that help. That's awesome. Yeah, I've got, I've got her email, but I promise I'm, I'm I won't touch it. Keep it confidential. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, okay. Uh, last last kind of maybe sum up question here. Um, do, do you have any like guiding principles or rules of thumb or something um, that that you've got that kind of keep you focused on on the high leverage stuff on the you know the things that only you can do that are that are maybe takeaways for people who have listened to this. I think Chris and I have, um, we've really just said there's a few jobs we have. Mm -hmm. One is occasionally, and I mean really occasionally, coaching CEOs. So if a CEO calls us with a at a crossroads or a big decision, we'll get involved. From there, it's hiring and firing CEOs and approving and disproving deals. And that's really all that we should do. 
Um, and then there's stuff like this where, you know, I'll do an interview or talk about what we're working on and with the goal of, you know, finding more great companies to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, um, our goal is actually to do no other tasks and distract ourselves as much as possible. So we try to live a life of relative leisure and it's not always, we get very busy, but uh, we try and leave a lot of white space in our days um, and have hobbies and you know things that we do so that when we need to make a decision, we can apply our full mental effort to it. And if we're too busy, so if, you know, if we're, if we're busy with a full calendar and then all of a sudden we, someone drops a $50 million deal on us, I don't have the brain power to make a good decision. Uh, and what I've noticed about myself is I have very few good decisions in me per day. And so I try and keep the cadence of them as low as possible. Yeah. Uh, I like that. So what do you, uh, what do you do to, to distract yourself? I think that's one of the things like leverage isn't just about doing more and more and more and more, right? It's all the same math helps you do the same with less effort and input. Um, if you're focused on applying the right force at the right time. Um, so, so what do you do with, with all this time that you've, that you've earned? Well, we were, um, we've been in a crazy period. I remember in February looking at Chris and going, okay, there's a pandemic. We'll let's rent a house. Cause we used to work in a cafe. We, yeah. we, we like working in cafes and uh, we'll just lock ourselves in this house and, you know, we'll go hang out, listen to some music, do our emails, but really the world's on fire. Let's just kind of you know, take a step back. Well, this is going to be a time of sitting and contemplation and waiting. And then we ended up deciding to raise a fund because we felt there was a looming dislocation. And we got that done by November. And then as soon as that was done, we took a company public. So this year has actually been incredibly busy. And I'm a hypocrite for saying I live a life of leisure because it's been very (laughs) stressful and busy. Um, Before that, and I'd say now, uh, you know, I would try and play tennis uh, a few times a week. Lots of time for reading, reading the newspaper, books, um, meeting a lot of interesting people is how we fill a lot of our time. That's my great pleasure in life. And the coolest mm-hmm. part about what we do is I find business is a great excuse to just connect with really interesting people. Um, and it's a way to make friends, right? It's a way yeah. to make friends really fast. You have this shared interest and this thing that you know, you're both passionate about. And then that it creates a bridge to talk about all the other stuff. Um, and then also following personal passions, like I've gotten really into uh, health and biology and other things like that through the lens of business a little bit. Uh, and again, using that as a way to meet interesting people just by helping them with their businesses and stuff. Um, so that, that's kind of how I fill my time. And then obviously every once in a while, I'm kind of starting a new little business for a few days or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I keep myself busy. <laughs> Sounds like it. I, I have a million questions for you about the the going public process, but that's a, that's a different interview. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. I have the same attraction to startups um, because I, I sensed kind of what you sensed in it, which is like there's you go through this incredibly hard thing with a set of people that just like it forges you all together, which is like my same experience in high school of like trying to figure out how to make friends. And then like you join a sports team and you're all just like training together and going through hellish experiences and racing together. And then all of a sudden you're friends magically. I was like, totally. startups is going to be, yeah, startups and businesses. Then, the it, then if it scales, it tears you apart. That's the hard part, <laughs> right? It's like, you know, yeah. I know very few co-founders or early employees who are all still buddy-buddy because, you know, money gets involved or people are different hierarchies within the company. You know, someone leaves and then they feel upset that that person left when things were hard or whatever. So I think it's a it's a hard way to, to make friends and it's a hard way to make money as well. My biggest learning is that, um, you know, if I look at it, Metalab had a lot of success and Metalab was what I call a launchpad business. It generated cash. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't what I was most passionate about. I was most passionate about software and all this other stuff, but it generated cash um, and it was doing something positive in the world. And I got to meet interesting people. So, it was a, you know, it was a great first business. Um, but so much of our success outside of that has actually been buying businesses and using our operational experience to improve them and hire great people. I actually haven't, I don't have an amazing hit rate in terms of starting companies and making tons of money that way. That's a really, really hard way to make money. I've got, I've probably started 10 businesses and I could point to three of them that are worth, you know, in the millions of dollars. Um, so that, that's, you know, it's just a hard way to go. There's a lot of failure involved and, you know, you're climbing a mud hill. 
Um, so I always yeah. advise people to try and get that business that generates them a lifestyle and comfort and a launch pad to then go and do all the other stuff. But startups are hard. <laughs> startups, startups are hard. Um, yeah. Yes, that is that will be the title of many biographies. Um, <laughs> thanks so much, Andrew. Uh, I super appreciate this, and uh, I look forward to the next time we get to talk. That was awesome. Thanks, Eric. We appreciate you hanging out with us today. I hope you enjoyed that. If you want to learn about leverage, increase your impact, and be with other people who are learning about and applying leverage, you can join our, our coursing community at eJorgensen.com. And I want to leave you with, with one question today. And that is this. What are the highest leverage decisions that you have not made yet? So you, you just heard what Andrew's are. What do you think yours will be when you look back at the, the 10 years that you're about to live. So take a quiet minute, think about that, and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.